Hello, my friends. Today, Joel's talking to Will, the co-founder and CTO at Virtru, and they discuss how Virtru allows you to keep control over who has access to your data after you send it away, how Will holds over 25 patents, and how we can keep AI explainable and keep bias out of AI going forward. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. What was your first job as a, like in electrical engineering in this category? My first uh, job was actually um, at Advanced Micro Devices in Austin. So AMD actually as, a, as an intern. So I was an electrical engineering, computer engineering undergrad. And we have at Rose Holman in Indiana, and there was a, a co-op program. So you rotate through different co-op um, quasi-internships. It's, you can be six months or longer. I ended up actually putting all my co-ops back to back and spending a little over a year at AMD, helping design uh, the first two processor motherboard on the 64-bit architecture. It was actually, it was interesting because like uh, AMD was definitely the underdog and Intel was the big beast. And Intel was in the process of like moving the world off of x86. And uh, AMD saw this opportunity as part of like the transition where Intel was saying, you know, as we move from 32-bit to 64-bit, let's kill x86. AMD was like, wait, you don't have to move. We'll just 64-bit everything. And so um, they were really... Um, season that opportunity. And and so I got to see the first Windows 2 processor 64-bit um, system boot up as as an intern. That was a lot of fun. Um, so I thought that was actually going to be my career is like working at AMD for the rest of my life. Um, and then a recruiter came and said, hey, you know, there, there are opportunities in the, in the government. Um, I was actually previously Air Force ROTC oh, and cool. really considering, you know, a career there and yeah, so it was an opportunity to actually get my hands dirty and, you know, get back into coding, which I thought, you know, as an Air Force officer, it would actually be harder because like a lot of the engineering expertise goes into like contracting type stuff. So um, it was a really cool opportunity. So I said, hey, boss, I've got this like shot and one shot in a million opportunity to uh, do something special in this regard. And he was like, dude, that's awesome. Go for it. Yes, it is really, really cool. I went to an event once and it was like a professional event, you know, local like downtown and I got recruited or somebody was trying to recruit me or engage my interest in doing uh, like offensive security for the FBI. Mm. And it sounds so cool, but then you realize that they're like a large organization, right? They have like thousands of employees and they have jobs. And like, you can just go, because we watch movies, right? So it gets kind of crazy, but uh, they have like, you could be an assistant to to someone. You can be a, a paper pusher. Uh, there's so many different jobs. It just sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um big community, lots of jobs. Is it, um, I actually you know ended up spending eight years at NSA, and you can have an ex actually an extremely varied uh, career there. Just you know hopping from like you said, like completely different roles, different kinds of you, know, you can go offense, you can go defense. I spent most of my time in defense, actually. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think some of the um, offensive stuff for hacking and things of that nature, those are newer newer movements, right? I mean, I, they existed before, but they're definitely growing in size now. 
especially they built a new base in um in Georgia and one of the the town that's known for like the golf like the golfing tournament I forget but Augusta Augusta Georgia but they built like a new cybersecurity command center there have you heard about that I haven't really spent a lot of time uh, most of my time was actually stuck in either DC area or deploying the there are some other facilities like they've got um uh, a joint unit actually in Colorado the the governor actually spent a lot of time talking about uh Hickenlooper in particular talking about the sort of joint integrated success there uh, but yeah it's you know that community is is growing and expanding and a lot of new discussions about the the varied missions that didn't used to be talked about as much you know like Ann Newberger uh, is an example of um, you know um getting out ahead of you know the cybersecurity you know issues and engaging with industry where you know NSA used to be you know never say anything is now more looking for opportunities to get the message out in terms of the you know cybersecurity threats and what to do you know, they just put out a zero trust architecture recommendation, for instance, that has some, you know, if you look, if you look closely like that and the new executive order actually has a lot of really powerful recommendations. If you look at it, does virtue do anything with the government or security? The preponderance, like 98% of what we do is commercial. Like just from a, from a mission standpoint, you know, you know, when I left government in, in 2012, the big motivation for me was the gap in usable security for the individual and you know having choice to say hey i want you know data privacy i want sovereignty over my data um you know for the first four or so years it was just a free product and we we're like we'll raise we'll raise some money we'll worry about um you know the details of the business model as we go um and believed in the you know get it into the individual's hands and that's really the crucible for usability so we definitely have you know federal engagements now like we got FedRAMP certified and that was quite an experience uh so we are selling you know capabilities back back into the government but i think you know the real focus is on be everybody else yeah i've heard those contract vehicles or however you get set up i i through that term around loosely, but I looked into it a little bit and the amount of work it takes for a business to be able to interface with the government. It's not a little bit of work. It's a lot of work. It is a ton of work. I think it can be very frustrating and intimidating. And a lot of components of the government are recognize the issue and are investing in a bunch of programs. Like depending on your domain, there are some really cool programs out there, like like the cyber, the small business um, uh, initiatives, and some there's some of these like incubators where you can go onto a campus and do like a, li- a literal like five minute pitch, um, and they've got this like on ramp process. You know, one example is um, AFWorks for the Air Force. Like you can go to Vegas, they've got this big facility. It looks super cool. Um, you go and pitch, and you they've got senior people that are taking a lot of time out to give you feedback and engage and just meet you and mingle and try to reduce that barrier. When push comes to shove for most of things, like exactly what you said, it's totally true. But there are, there are pockets of some really cool innovation happening as well. Yeah, relationships are everything, right? Getting to meet and interface with those people, that can change your entire life. Yep, yep, totally. So what are you learning right now? You, you're a founder of this company, co-founder with your brother, correct? Yep. Um, yeah, John, um, he was in New York doing private equity when, you know, I was talking about 
you know, we had we had just released uh, on the public internet the uh, the spec that I've been working on for a few years. So there's this thing called the, the trusted data format, which is really just a an open source wrapper for hey, if I'm going to if I want to control who has access to my data, uh, it's a it's a standardized way of of tagging it uh, and encrypting it and saying you know how do you control the key, and um, I was basically saying, look, the, the real opportunity is in reducing the friction associated with like end-to-end encryption. And now that this is out there for anyone to use, like, I think there's an opportunity to take this, you know, into the apps that everyone uses every day. So, yeah. So John um, left his job in private equity, moved to DC, and we started a company together. And it was really cool. Like there are a lot of things that I could do with my brother and just have super open and honest and difficult conversations. That would be tricky if we weren't, you know, tied by, you know, genetics, I feel like. <laughs> so it's been a it's been a good thing? It has been incredible. We actually had a couple of potential investors say, under no certain like under no uncertain terms should you ever, you know you know, found a company with um, a family, it just introduces unnecessary risk, it can get complicated. And that would be that could be a negative. Um, We talked to some people um, who had counter opinions. And frankly, I've learned a lot about my brother. Uh, We're, you know, we're we're separated by six years, I'm the youngest, and he's the oldest. And I got to know him more, I feel like more through running a company together than, you know, the previous 30 some odd years of my life. So there are some rough spots, but that we are, we get along super well. And it's, it's been, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I love it. I've got an older brother. He's a doctor. We interface at dinner about (laughs) the problems at the crossroads of technology and medicine. So your, your uh, data format actually could have some, some usability there too, in the medical space, right? Big time. That's actually the, in the medical industry is the largest um, shared vertical. Um, across our customers. So we got like 6,000 some odd organizations that use Virtru and personal health information, you know, HIPAA and, you know, wanting to do right by patients is the most common use case for it, for sure. Have you looked into uh, what Tim Berners-Lee is doing with his pods and his solid framework? Yeah, like trying to move, um, you know, some of a lot more to the edge. I, I haven't dug in into it uh, super deeply. Oh, I was telling Rob, I was like, you guys should dig into this because the explanation I got from Rob about what you guys are doing sounds identical to the explanation I had from Tim Berners-Lee. And so I, you know, Rob had a, like a surface level understanding. He had looked into it a while ago, mm-hmm. I believe he said, and then, um, you know, things mature over time, but they've got, you know, 50 plus employees and they're implementing this for governments and like large organizations. And um, it's a, it's a, it's again, it's like a, uh, framework like a utility set of tools they're building like the the plumbing and the mission and everything sounds so similar uh probably either like partner with the technology or glean some insight as to how they're handling certain problems but the freedom of data is you know i want to own the data i want it to be mine and of course it can have restrictions in place but yeah that's that's where i think the world's going it's super cool. I remember, um, you know, for for a while, the narrative had been everything should be open, right? And then to include the information that's published. And so some of the frameworks of the past didn't have as much of those semantics built in. Like the semantics were relational to data, but not semantics around 
policy for access control. And when you're dealing with things like personal health information, right, it's not like you necessarily have something to hide, but you very much, that's a private, that's a privacy thing. And, and um, that's really exciting to hear. I think, you know, it's worth digging into. We've, we've actually partnered with, with a handful of companies that have the same sort of philosophy and, you know, the more the merrier, uh, as far as I'm concerned, like everything that we do is built on an open core. So if, you know, there are opportunities to collaborate, or frankly, even if there are things that they're doing that are leading the charge on, on some fronts, like, yeah, totally. I think that'd be, it could be a cool mashup. Yeah, with my limited experience of both, and I'm not the brightest person in the world. Like I had to get Tim Berners-Lee, I was like, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old, you know, to really help me wrap my mind around it. But from from the little bit of knowledge that I have, it seems like your your product would almost be like a tool that would, or like an app on their framework because they do, their mission's like more open and robust, uh, I guess, from from the little explanation I've had. And it seems like you guys would be a perfect tool for helping permission and share these these pods or this data. But I could be completely wrong. I mean, I, I think so far, all the core use cases that um, we've come across, it's been a nice, easy, lightweight integration. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's totally true. So you have you have 25 patents, is that right? It's about that, yeah. Uh, some of those um, don't count from the standpoint of it's like the same patent in one country and and like a second country kind of a thing. Yeah, there have been a handful of exciting innovations just staring at seemingly intractable problems and then kind of busting through those with you know some some hard thought and sweat and late nights. Are they mostly virtue type patents or are they just across the board like all sorts of, do you have like anti-gravity machines in there? <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't accept that one. They're mostly virtue oriented. There's there's one that I have that is not, um, that has to do with some more hardware fail safe design concepts, but everything else is, you know, it's like a searchable encryption um, is one. So if you, you know, traditionally, like if you were to PGP encrypt all of your emails, then uh, that frustrates one of the most exciting features of modern email, which is you can search your inbox in an instant, right? So figuring out a way that a cloud-based email provider can't see your data, but you can still search and they're the ones doing the indexing and they don't know what you're searching for, but they can uh, retrieve your emails. We have some IP around being able to do that unilaterally. And then, you know, some other things are in usability where you don't want to require people to install software in order to receive an end-to-end encrypted message, right? So um, there is a lot of IP in some of the differentiated implementations of the open spec that, that we have. So it's kind of an interesting thing from like a business standpoint, right? We want to make darn sure that anybody at any point in time can take their keys and, and, and go home and they've got all the, like everything that they need to be able to continue to consume their data is open. But we also, you know, want to have a business model that's sustainable. So for some of like the premium features and usability aspects, we've got, you know, some patents around. That's pretty neat. Did you imagine you'd be doing this and building all these patents when you were like in grade school? Oh gosh. I kind of dreamed of just being able to, uh, you know, tinker and, and, and build, you know, widgets. Um, I'm very much a mechanical bent. Um, I sort of happenstanced my way into the space. Like when I was, when I was originally hired by NSA, it was for electrical engineering. 
um, and I was told, hey, you're going you're gonna to build boxes and un unprotected bits are going to go in one end and protected bits are going to go out the other. Um, and then, you know, the, the world became more software oriented and they said, all right, you're going to do that, but in software and, you know, the, in a sense, the rest is history. So I've got the, the, the brain wiring and I, I had the sort of the desire as a kid to like build things. Um, and, and now I'm much more in the software territory. You can build things faster. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, like to build, it's a, it's an interesting world, like to build things these days, you almost more often than not being, a knowing how to code can, can be really helpful. Right. It's like, it's going to be powered. It's going to be smart. It's going to be internet connected and you want it to be, you know, for, to compete. Oftentimes that's what people are looking for. Well, it has to have a good API. Yep. Yep. Um, and in fact, it's interesting, like going full circle, right? So for the first eight years of, of uh, Virtue, gosh, I'm trying to do my math, uh, seven, we were not at the edge, right? So all these, the things that are being built um, and, you know, the, the, the space of IoT was not really our focus. There's just so much wood to chop in things like email and, you know, protecting files that you put on, you know, Google Drive, uh, or, or, you know, what have you, but now increasingly getting back onto the devices, like his devices are often one of the biggest risks, um, right. And the, like threats of compromise and like, uh, in terms of tracking where you are, like video cameras, all these sorts of things, that is the, the, one of the main sources of like sort of PII pollution, right? So how can you sort of sequester that? How can you make sure that that's under your control uh, and an asset rather than a liability. So we've been recently kind of circling back um, on, on the IOT play. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Are you enjoy what you do every day. You love it. I absolutely love it. You know, being able to see hard problems and dig into them with some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with um, and see success and then see expansion, you know, in a sustainable way where it's a cool problem. I'd be working on it anyway, but there's just a, a sustainable business model around it. It's pretty special. Where do you spend like the most of your time, the bulk of your time? It's a mix, you know, I, I'm, I'm a member of the board. So I gotta, I gotta, you know, do the audit committee things and stuff like that. But most of my time is split between engaging with customers and uh, sort of the leading edge R and D. So hard problems, uh, okay, you know, the thing that's on the, it might be impossible uh, kinds of territory and saying, okay, is, can we make that possible? What, what um, sort of threads do we have to pull? So I get to sort of straddle those two, which is, which is really nice. I love that. I get, I get weird because I get to talk to so many people. So I place like bets on like, which, which profile is he? And I, the R and D bet paid off in my head. I was like, yes. Because man, you're brilliant. You got 25 patents. Like, why would you want to give that up? You know, you it, let's embrace that and like turbocharge that and surround you with an amazing team that will just like take you to the next level. The thing for me is, um, and I think it sounds like you've got a lot of similar orientation, which is if you're you're exposed to a problem, you want to solve it. And for for me, right, it's like you know, I when your mom was you know doing things like, oh, this is a pain. Can you alleviate my pain? I don't like building shelfware. I'm not, um, I don't think I'd be a good mathematician 
maybe maybe an applied mathematician, but definitely not a theoretical mathematician. But I didn't understand like how is this going to get used? How is this going to actually improve someone's life? And so getting out there, I've tested as an introvert, um, but um, I'm sadder when I don't ha like have someone to be modeling in my head with fidelity to say and 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 a problem. So getting out there is kind of a necessity for me. But once I've had those engagements, I also like to just, you know, clip, shut the door, sink into a problem, you know, pull a couple of really bright other engineers to tackle that with me. Yeah, that's what stumped me too, first trying to really understand introverts, extroverts, all this stuff. I, I came after a couple of years of thinking about it and just living life. I'm like, people just have moods. <laughs> there's, there's some time, there's seasons too. It's not like a daily thing. Like, you know, throughout the year, there are different moods I go through, different things I want. And, you know, I focus on one for a while and then I want some variety. So I go to another. And then over time, you develop strengths on a couple different areas. And then, yeah. Yep. I totally, uh, totally relate to that. Generally, I, you know, there, particularly recently, some of the times I've been getting out there, and particularly after COVID, it's just been so energizing. That's that's actually a relatively new feeling for me. Like some, most of the time, I you know spend a lot of time like face to face, and it I need I need to recharge. But I think it's one of those seasons for me, right? I just want to get back out there for everybody. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like the rain is over. Let's go out and play. You know. Yep. Yep. You do get to spend a lot of time with your with your customers. What what do they want? What are they talking about right now? Yeah, I'm mean, frankly feel free to dig into to R and D all you want um, as well, but. Because a lot of a lot of what we're doing is, you know, frankly, if we could recruit other people who are thinking about the same problem, well, let's give it a shout out. That that actually happens a lot on the podcast. Tell me about the problems you're you're thinking about. It'll attract the right people. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the big things that you know we're looking at is like very low power, low size uh, encryption. So you're thinking about like uh, a smartwatch or a tag uh, and those sorts of things. Like, what are the most computationally efficient and fast mechanisms for protecting data? You know, because traditionally, you know, encryption has been seen as as having overhead. We've been able to reduce that really nicely. And then the other is as you're operating at scale. So we we've been looking at okay, if you have a million or ten million patient records you want to ask um, a research question over, is there a scalable way that each of the individual patients can have affirmative auditable control over their data? We can do it for like hundreds of thousands of records just fine and not really get in the way of an analytic. Can that scale to millions without having to delegate to like a central key authority? To what extent can it be true individual sovereignty and how can you minimize the number of third parties that you have to trust? That's a tough problem. Yeah. It's also, I think, um, a phenomenally exciting kind of quantum leap potential, right? So one of the biggest friction points for health research or a lot of different research domains in almost every industry like we were talking to one of our largest uh, customers. They, they, they're one of the larger credit card uh, processors. There are billions of dollars of fraud that could be reduced, um, like prevented, where that ends up translating into increased percentage fees that our business, the businesses we interact with have to pay, right? But at scale, you know, say, okay, I'm going to reduce that friction. Like, can 
our like our transaction data can power that can that power that in a in a super private way make sure that you know dots can be connected if amex is having a problem and visa is having a problem over here and it's like there are threat intelligence um sharing systems where like they're, they're called isacs where like there's a financial services isac and the information that's shared is of a much lower fidelity because of the lack of actual control that each party has when they're sharing data into that environment. So if you can answer this question, say, look, I'm going to protect my data before I share it. And then I can govern how my data is being used as it's being analyzed and people are asking questions of it. I think that could burgeon a, like a foundational new era um, of the value of data. Because I, you know, data is only valuable if it's going to be used, but the potential for misuse prevents some of the sharing. So being able to right, categorize those two, I think it's worthy of a collaborative effort. And I don't, I'm not sure that there are a lot of organizations right now that see the opportunity. There's already with the current technology, so much opportunity to take this sort of self-protecting data, like a data-centric zero trust is what some people call it. So yeah, I would love to recruit in that regard. Are you, is there ever, we talked earlier about being able to search encrypted data. And so... Is there a way that these two things could come together? Absolutely. Like we're sharing data, it's encrypted, but we can also search it. So like you they kind of have the data, but they kind of don't. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a domain of mathematics. You we were talking about math, um, in in particularly math, uh, applied math in with homomorphic encryption. So like there's categories of research where they're trying to move from it is exponentially slower to maybe it's not so as exponentially slower in order to compute in the in the encrypted domain. But it, it sounds like magic, right? If you can encrypt pieces of data and actually answer questions without decrypting it. The problem with it right now is in most cases, it's just way too slow. So there are there's some really cool research happening in other domains like searchable symmetric encryption. That's closer to what we are doing for the searchability. But Doing that will actually frustrate the ability to answer certain questions of that data. So you can do searches like keywords, but you can't as easily do things like AI training or other things. So having uh, like this third category of, I'm not gonna try to muck with the data. I'm just gonna do a standard encryption and then put it somewhere into an environment where later I can give someone the key and I can require whatever obligations I need before I grant the key. It's like, hey, I'm at your house. Can I come in? It's like, well, you know, have you taken your shoes off? <laughs> like, are, are you clean? Uh, right. Um, are, are, are you who you say you are? I'm going to authenticate you first and all these sorts of things. Right. You can you can control. You can say yes or no, even if you're not directly there. So and it's flexible. It's a lot more flexible. Have you followed, I, I, for some reason, I think you get inspired by how they're storing data inside of DNA and how they search on that physical data. Have you learned about this at all? I'm not. Okay. So the company I talked to, uh, Catalog DNA, uh, they were born, I believe, out of an MIT research lab. I'd followed them for several years uh, and they were encoding data into physical DNA. And the problem originally was the rate at which you could actually encode. So they've like amplified that to where it's actually a commercial product now, uh, primarily used in the write once, read never 
type stuff. People that use like the big tape backups, you know, they'll like write a bunch of it and they'll never actually read it. Uh, that's an industry, right? That's a whole market category. So it's, it has applicable financial gain there today because of the density. The density ratio is roughly a football stadium filled with storage servers condensed down to the size of your hand. That's the density of the data. That's incredible. And what they're, yeah. And, and there, there's like thousands of copies because the way that the DNA molecules work of the data. So it's very redundant. It lasts a long time. And the way they search it is actually through chemistry and chemical like chain reactions. So they can run these like ridiculously fast searches. Of course, 80, 90% of this stuff is like all just in labs right now, not happening like at the level of consumerization that we imagine most things happen at. Right. But uh, it's amazing what's going on. And, and when I was hearing you talk about, you know, the way your mind works, I think if you, uh, if you want some playtime going and watching some of the, the videos of how they're actually doing this might inspire you for some of the, the problems you're trying to solve. That's super cool. I, in, in, I can think of a handful of ways I'd love to kind of pull that thread. You know, one is could like, if you're, can, if you're going to be encoding information, is there a way to kind of meta encode it so that you can control who can decode it? And like, you know, the other thing is like, is there a, a parlay are there are, is there technology learned there to help protect at the edge dna decoding so one of the biggest threats today is the supply chain of um you know if you go to one of the the big you know pay a hundred dollars get your dna decoded it's uncertain very uncertain who might end up having a copy of your dna I just assume everyone that's when I did it the one time I just, I like, I realized no matter what the fine print says, I'm doing this, but I'm just assuming that this is public record now. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 um, I've withheld having to do that unless it's for a very specific medically necessary reason where it's like, it, it's my life or family or whatever. Right. But I've, I've held back, but I wouldn't be surprised if like they could take it. So you, you could like spit in a vial, mix it with the encryption key and like shake it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. When you start hearing, listen to the episode uh, with, with David at catalog DNA, when you start hearing about how they actually will run searches on this data, I mean, this stuff, this is chemistry based type stuff. Yeah. I, I think if, if they if they can figure out how to um, apply you know privacy to anything approaching that, I think that would be mind-bendingly powerful. So I know that it's like a national it's 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 frankly it's a national security issue, and for some countries it's a national imperative and like strategic asset to like protect. Depending on who you are and what your bent is, either like protect my people's DNA or get as much people's DNA as humanly possible. Uh, and, you know, having, having the tools to fight back, um, and not have to make the sort of like foundational compromises of like, I'm not going to opt into modern medicine as a result that becomes problematic, but yeah. Yeah. I figured I might get a letter from like my insurance agency. You know, I've been disqualified for coverage because of a pre-existing condition from something they did a partnership with like data DNA or, or, or what's the name of the like 23 and me or something, you know, um, or one of the big names, 
we'll cut out that like one of the big name companies. Right. <laughs> and then uh, that's a real legitimate thing. I mean, it's weird too, because uh, I don't know if we're kind of getting off topic, but like they, they do it already in some ways, like with your driving record, like you have no control over not letting the insurance company have your driving record. Mm. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And so they are able to rate you and they use your credit report. You have no control over them not having access to your credit report. So it's, it's kind of weird because other areas we like, what are they going to do with insurance and our DNAs and things like that? It's, I don't know, man, I'm off topic, but you're not, it's a weird world. You're not off topic at all, at least not from my standpoint, particularly like where in terms of like the, again, the R and D stuff that, that we're doing, um, we have pilots today. Um, and you know, if you think about like your credit report's a good example and, and frankly, there could be a lot of value and you could, I'm thinking about the, the, the sort of 23andMe um, DNA and your credit report and all of your other data. This is often information that's being sold, but right now, and, and uh, I think, what was it? It's like, it was like hundreds of millions of dollars were paid by one of the largest pharmaceutical companies, one of the largest DNA companies for the DNA data set that they had. And, well, where's my check or where's your check? Right. Right. You know, for that, if you, and, and really what all that had to happen is you check the box saying, Hey, um, I approve my DNA for, for being used for research purposes. What they don't tell you is often for commercial drug development purposes. That's research. Sure. Um, but like you're being sold down the river. The same thing is true for your personal health record. If you've ever opted into like a drugstore coupon program, they're usually, if you read the fine print, they're usually opting you into additional, or you're opting into having them sell every little piece of information that they're gathering about you commercially. And the, and the protection requirements under the law, at least in the United States, are abysmal. It, research has proven that it's re-identifiable. So being able to wrap up that data and say, because um, with new laws coming in, right? So it's like, get, get, let's get the message out there. You can still answer the analytic questions that you need to answer. Like, are you a high credit risk broadly? Or, you know, some kind of generalized non-detail privacy invasive kind of a thing. Let's like like reduce the exposure. You can you can still empower people to answer questions that they must or um, answer without revealing all of the information if you protect the data itself. And genetic data is actually one of the most powerful examples of this, I I, I think, because it doesn't do us any good to like have a, a text document with a bunch of ATCs and Gs in it. Like, I don't know, I can't turn that into actual information. I have to give that to a third party, but the technology is there today to wrap that up so that they can turn the crank. They never see your raw genetic data and they can produce the answers uh, in a way where the answers are pr themselves protected so that only the, the um, you know, who you authorize to see that information can actually access it, if that makes sense. So, so you don't have to be disempowered 
in order for these questions to be answerable. And that applies, I think, to all of the things that we've been talking about. And it's a core aspect of like the next generation of what we're doing with TDF. Is it because my application would run in your environment and I wouldn't have like a stream back to that? No, it, um, there, part of our goal is there's no our environment. There's no virtue environment. It is um, core technologies, sort of DNA of like data that's open. That is the language of being able to say, hey, you know, cause like if you think about PGP, right? Um, Alice sends an email um, and what PGP allows you to do is say, all right, I'm sending this to Bob and here's Bob's key. So that lock can only be opened um, by Bob. But you could do the same thing for your, for your patient record with an open protocol. But instead of Bob, it could be Alice's patient record as, an, as a more abstract attribute. And then the like, re-encryption can happen much more dynamically. And so being able to just write that language and say, here are the piece parts. We've got this envelope that says, here's how it's encrypted. We've got this attribute language. We've got a routing protocol to say, here's where you, 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 you call back to an authoritative server if there needs to be. And those servers can be run by anybody. And then the ability to issue identity and federate, right? So like one of the magical things that happened as we were kicking off Virtue is SSO and federated identity were maturing. So the idea like all these protocols existed to be able to interconnect like the, the legs of the stool, right? Identity, encryption in these entitlements and say, this is the language and anyone can adopt it. Now, I want to get a little nerdy here because there's something I didn't pick up on. Okay, so, and, and help me here. So you've got this encryption. I, I understand the concept of, you know, PGP and, and the locking. I understand like the envelope of your, of the TDF um, from, to some degree. But what I, where I'm lost is as a software engineer, like I imagine, okay, I get this data. Uh, it, it, I unencrypt it. And so now I can perform calculations to gain insights on it, right? But how can I do that without, having a copy of it because you know you can search the encrypted or you can do something like how, how does that happen yeah so there are sort of like maybe four or five different trust levels and you can condition releasing a key uh conditional on that one of which is like a confidential compute so um all the major vendors now have hardware roots of trust with the ability to spin up a piece of software sitting inside of an isolated piece of memory on a chip, whether it's AMD, Intel, um, any of the different major providers of ARM, if you're sitting on a Samsung S20, you can spin up an enclave. And there's a, a remote attestation protocol where I remotely can say, am I talking to one of those enclaves? And if I am, let me get a public key associated with it and oh, by the way, one more question. What software is running inside? Give me the hash. And you can, and, and the Enclave will actually sign it. So you'll get a manifest. So you can pick and choose. Again, it's a federated thing. You can say, okay, I got a manifest proving that it is your software running on an Intel chip. 
at that point, I might not even care where it is. And I'm going to release the key into that software. So if you have an app designed for one particular purpose and it's been audited and it's published on like a, um, you know, as a Docker container or whatever, you can know before the question is asked um, what piece of software and what question that piece of software can ask as it's unlocked in the Enclave. Interesting. That's complicated stuff, man. It's been many years in the making. 2006, I took a swing at it with a, a you know, team of engineers with like this concept of a TPM chip, a trusted platform module. But it was sensitive to way too many things. If the BIOS on your computer changed one bit, all bets were off. And it just wasn't practical. But with the concept of Docker containers and the new generation of these enclaves, it becomes increasingly just like deploying any other Docker container. It's just that the identity of that software is now a lot stronger. Are you, are you still keeping up like pretty close with what AMD is doing now? Yeah, we now have one, uh, a team dedicated to tracking the details of that. It's, it's an interesting sort of technical race um, on a bunch of fronts. I got to talk to Mark Papermaster from there. He was like a really smart guy about this stuff. Did he get into Enclave uh, technologies at all or is he more focused on other things? Nope. I just learned the word Enclave today in this context. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, um, yeah. So if you, it, it, in you know, that whole space, I think bleeds into what some people consider to be DRM, right? So if Netflix wants to be able to deliver a movie, can they be sure that there's not a trivial like exploit of, you know, to just pull the movie and publish it as a torrent or whatever. Yeah. I think that the, the trick in the magic is democratizing that control. Like it's, it's not about Netflix's movie. It's about my constraining the use of my personal data. You think a lot about this personal data, don't you? It's um, it's a core core mission objective for us, you know, and, and for all of the, R&D, you know, independent of who might be paying for the initial work, it's, and if you think about most of the regulatory regimes that are, that are out there, a lot of times it ends up circling back to being about us, right? Whether it's um, like criminal justice information, right? So a lot of local police departments and like body cam concerns, right? And, and, and the opportunities there, it's a loaded subject, but like, you know, there are, there are transparency opportunities and deploying those, but, you know, it's, it's burdensome from a cost standpoint, but one core anchor of that is they're out there recording us, even though it's a regulatory thing that might not be on its surface about personal rights. Well, the, the silver lining here is that every time I get into one of these conversations, I'll go hunt down some experts that are in the space, whether it's like our data privacy or whatever it may be. And every single time, I come to the conclusion that there are really, really smart people who care a whole lot, who have great intentions that are working on this night and day with something that has a, you know, cash flow positive business model behind it. And then, then I sort of check that off my list and I can sleep at night, but, like, <laughs> but there's still like those big ones. It's the biggest one being AI, you know, taking over the world. It's like, there's a lot, everyone building it that I have talked to is really, really smart and they all have great intentions. So hopefully that's, the the amazing AI that comes out of it. <laughs> AI is its own for yeah. I, I, we actually are spending um, a lot of time uh, in in that space as well. Very different angle. 
than I think a lot of organizations because you know some and again it is privacy um, when push comes to shove for for a lot of it insofar as if there's a model like one of the big things I worry about is um, transparency and explainability and 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 bias to avoid avoid bias um, there's there are a lot of dangers um, in not being able to be introspective and be able to attest to, okay, how was something trained? What was the training data? Is that trustworthy? Because people's bails are being recommended by AIs today, right? And that can mean the difference between getting released uh, or being stuck in prison. And right now there's like a lot of, like people are not requiring an audit trail and you know, think about TDF, um, and you can compose it in a really straightforward way. It's like this model was trained by this algorithm, like on an enclave, using this training data. Um, and then, if someone has a has a um, civil rights kind of question, you you can you know provide affirmative evidence. And if there is an issue, you can revoke it. Right, so part of TDF is being able to say no. So you get that information, like you can, you provide this transparency, the enclave, the algorithm that's going to run and the training data that was used, that will actually come back to me like on the initial handshake. So like before I choose to send my data over there. Yes. So, so I'm essentially just using them for processing power. Like everything's been checked. I know exactly what they're doing. They're just going to process this for me. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so in, in the mature case, compute where the compute is is incidental because you're not having to trust the people who are administering the box and there's uh right if the um if the hardware is built right dude that's gonna that's gonna change it that's that's brilliant man <laughs> are you guys publicly traded can i buy some virtue stock <laughs> <laughs> not yet not yet um but it, right. but it is one of those things that um you know um we're, we'll be opening core aspects of this, right? You should not trust a black box. So being able to say, okay, I want to wrap my data. And then a cloud provider has, you can just, it's got commodity hardware and the bits converge. Yeah, totally. I think it's, as I was alluding to earlier, I think, you know, people don't, um, aren't wired to think this way yet. About and, ex- and have expectations around their their the control of their data, but I think over time, as some of these deployed cases um, are talked about more, I think it'll spawn the imagination a little bit more and get people expecting being able to say, "That's possible. I want that." Yes, yes. And then to ground myself, I always think like two humans ago, like two generations ago, we barely had electricity be common in the household. Right. So we are, I think it's what been like hundred, 110 years or something, but it's, that's nothing, man. Yeah. And the, the, the pace of acceleration, like the exponent is increasing, let alone just the absolute right. I feel like this is maybe, you know, and my hope, my hope is that, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we're, you're talking about AI and like where this, the trajectory going to go, right. Cause a lot of people debate about our, you know, is it, you know, when the, um, singularity comes right but having having insight i don't know i don't want to dive too too deep into that hole but i think 
what you said about that, about the accelerating trajectory is, is dead on. All right. So next time we talk, we're going to go deep into the AI hole, right? We'll, we'll bring up the Pentagon and their off-world vehicles <laughs> because that's, that's like, it still blows my mind uh, that, that like, I don't know. I just think it's cool. Um, and we'll talk about all sorts of weird edge and French stuff too. Love it. You sound like a cool person for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a, a new accelerating domain. Um, indeed. And maybe, maybe depending on the timing, let's talk a little bit about Mars as well. <laughs> Yes. So we've got Mars, AI, off-world vehicles. Lot, and there's, there's off-world vehicles, by the way, right now. We've got rovers on Mars. So those are some off-world vehicles too. Um, but I want to make sure we do some work here too. Uh, call to action. Do we have any specific call to action? We, we said earlier, you're looking to recruit some talent. If they're interested in that, they can reach out to your careers page. Yeah, I think um, you know virtue.com. Uh, you navigate to um, you know job. We are we are looking for uh, people that are smart on confidential compute encryption. A lot of as well designers, right? So one of the the big things for us is we see ourselves as a user experience company as well. And so being able to design that interface in a lot of ways, I see myself actually is working in service of the like that UX team, right? What's the experience that people expect? Let's get there. So yeah, so like full stack engineers, we're hiring almost That's across amazing. the board. Okay. And then if people want to use your services, what's like the number one reason why people become customers of Virtue? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you, you know, really, I think it's to be, if you want to be a, particularly as you're, you're sharing externally, be perceived as a thought leader in the privacy space and reduce friction as you're communicating, um, particularly externally, right? So it's one thing to protect information within your environment, but being a good custodian of private private information, whether it's your IP as you're collaborating, it's both the, both the right thing to do. And I think there can be a huge business improvement as well, like reducing the friction as you're working with other organizations. Amazing. And so it's just virtu.com? V-I-R-T-R-U. Oh, Adam, we got a, we got a typo in our show notes here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't do I didn't do you guys any uh, favors with the naming of the company. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cool though. It sounds like virtuous, you know, which is it's a it's a positive word. It's a good good intent there. It's 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 um it's completely destroyed my ability to say the word virtue. Um, <laughs> it's now patience is a virtue. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.